0: I think, the, I think the title of this class is um, Faith Seeking Understanding, Lessons Un, in parentheses, Learned. Lessons Learned, Lessons Unlearned. Faith Seeking Understanding, Lessons Unlearned. And um, the title, Faith Seeking Understanding, is taken from a famous phrase by Anselm, St. Anselm. Anselm was one of the greatest bishops of the medieval church. He was uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Canterbury, of course, is one of the most uh, fabled places in English imagination, and it's also one of the most uh, fabled and important places in the history of the Western church. Uh, Some of the greatest thinking, writing, imagination about Christianity happened in Canterbury. And uh, I would encourage you, if you ever get the chance to go to England, make sure you go to the... uh, to the church at Canterbury. Amazing things happened where, uh, for example, those who had the guts to stand up against the power of the throne in the name of their faith uh, struck down while they prayed before the altar, even there, murdered in the church. Amazing place. So Anselm, I I forget if he was 10th or 11th or 12th century, uh, Anselm, one of the greatest of the archbishops of Canterbury. Anselm suggested that the task of theology is faith-seeking understanding. Faith-seeking understanding. And what I want to do this morning in kind of introducing what we're going to do in our time together this, uh, this term is to convince you perhaps that faith-seeking understanding, or another way to put it, that theology is actually a pretty legit endeavor that um, is something that all of us ought to be concerned with and pay some serious attention to. So I want to do this under kind of three points, three major points today. And my, my plan is to, uh, I'll probably try to talk about 20, 25 minutes, and then we'll leave us hopefully 10 minutes for discussion at the end. But I want to do this under three points. The first one, and they're and they're taken from the three words in the phrase, faith, seeking, understanding. Well, first I think about um, the presumption of faith in this, faith-seeking understanding. It's presumed by Anselm that if you're doing theology, you're actually starting with faith. For him, and for much of the Christian tradition, faith is a gift. Faith is not something that we somehow come to on our own, but faith is a consequence of God first reaching out to us, God in God's grace first coming to us, God in God's love first seeking us out, And so faith is always seen not as some sort of accomplishment of my intellect. Faith is always seen as a gift given to the believer. And Anselm starts in that same place, the presumption of faith, of having been given a gift of faith. And he says further then, quote, for I do not seek to understand so that I may believe. Now watch, you see what he's saying? I do not seek to understand so that I may believe, but I believe so that I may understand. He starts with the presumption of faith. Given faith, then, the use of rationality to come to further understanding, he also thought, then, was a gift of grace. He has this presumption, then, that we may come to understand certain things. This is important to try to note from the beginning. We may come to understand certain things that will come to us only through having first believed and trusted. In other words, he's suggesting that there's a whole realm of reality and there's a whole realm of truth that one may never come to understand if one does not first believe. And that one gets to that understanding not because you somehow get to that apart from faith, but that starting in faith and through faith, one can then go on to understand things one could not understand otherwise. You might think about it this way. Um, you know, my um, Laura and I. Let's see, we we're, we're now married. Wait. <laughs> I do know this. We will be married 30 years in October. This coming October. So we've been married over 29 years now. And um, because we have lived in the commitment to stay together, um, we have come to know certain things about each other and understand things about one another, understand things about ourselves, and understand things about the nature of what it means to be human that we could not have known had we not stayed in that. Now, pair that up with the notion that the the Old English of the word belief, I think it's helpful to realize that belief does not simply mean intellectual cognition or intellectual ideas, but that the word belief in in Old English was by, L-I-E-F, what one lives by. Belief is what one lives by, what one is committed to and what one claims is worthy of you living by, and me living by. And what he's suggesting here, then, is not, I think, some sort of what the, what the theologians would call a fideism, where you just say, well, I'm just going to believe it because I believe it. But it's instead one saying, this is what I've given myself to. And he's saying, if you give yourself to this, you will come to know things you could not know otherwise enlarm me, giving ourselves to each other, we've come to know things we could not know otherwise. And Anselm is saying, by giving ourselves to the call of God and giving ourselves to belief, we come to know things we couldn't know otherwise. Now, I think this is really important to note from the start because it seems that there are a lot of people who are fearful of theology. Theology is seen as a sort of disdainful even, perhaps, sometimes. But I want to suggest that many of the theological challenges that get posed to us, that is when theologians, not, this is by by no means true all the time, but in my experience, usually, when a theologian is raising a hard, challenging question, It's not because they think, how can I subvert the faith of the faithful? It's because the faithful have said, oh my goodness, have you grappled with this question? Can you help me with this question? And the theologian, in trying to be faithful to the task of theology, says, let us together try to figure out if we can come to some understanding, not in spite of our belief, but because of our belief. Does that make sense? So the theologians then are trying to grapple out of their lived experience and the lived experience of the faithful to try to come to some sort of understanding. So some of the, you you take for example, you know, a lot of people get all worked up about when the theologians start asking hard questions about the Bible. You know, well, they're just trying to undercut our faith because they're asking hard questions about the Bible. And then I start to ask, well, have you ever read the Bible? You know, do you, are you aware of the fact that, for example, silly example, that in um, Numbers 25.9, that, that, that painful story about people rebelling against Moses and 24,000 die that one day in the wilderness, you know that story? Well, we have a little problem of the text in that Paul, when Paul tells that story in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you know what he says happened? Anybody know this? Anybody know what I'm about to say? Oh. (laughs) Well, Paul says, you remember that day that 23,000 people died in the wilderness? Wait a second. Paul, have you not read Numbers? It says 24,000. And you just said 23,000. Now, some of you would say, get on with it. And others of you would say, are you serious? Really? There's that problem in the text? I mean, that, that mere textual issue has been a grave threat to some people's faith. And they'll come up with all sorts of explanations about how to explain the fact that numbers says twenty-four thousand and Paul says twenty-three thousand when he's, when all Scripture is inspired of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, says Timothy. Right. Well, the theologians are not trying to find ways to undercut your faith. Generally speaking, some of them I really don't like and don't necessarily trust, but. Generally speaking, that's not the task. They're just saying, look, this is a simple problem that arises not in spite of faith, but because of faith. Or, take, for example, the fact that we have all sorts of issues around Scripture. You know, we have what the theologians call the synoptic problem. The synoptic problem being that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are telling basically the same story and use a lot of the same stories, but some of them add stories that others don't have. Some of them drop stories that the others do have. And some of them, when they tell the story, tell the story in markedly different ways and somebody else tells the story. It's like, well, which one of the stories is right? Or why are they doing that? If all Scripture is inspired of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, and in righteousness. Or then you have the problem of the Gospel of John who doesn't do it anything like Matthew, Mark, and Luke does, and he gets all sorts of stuff really screwed up, it seems. I mean, take something as basic as the cleansing of the temple. When does that happen? When does Jesus cleanse the temple? You all know this. You learn this in Sunday school. When does he cleanse the temple? Holy week, right? He goes into, he goes into Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple at the beginning of the week before he gets crucified. Except when does John have him doing it? at the very beginning of his ministry, in John chapter 2. Look, the theologians are not trying to subvert your faith. They have people who read the Bible, and then they say, oh my, what am I supposed to do with this in the Bible? Right? They start with the presumption of faith. They start with the presumption of the Christian tradition. They start with belief, and then try to come to some sort of understanding. Well, so lived experience might be a second area where questions arise, not just out of the Bible, but out of knowing some of the basic claims about who God, who we say God is, and then the lived experience of the church. Um. I remember the um, any anybody in here read Ellie Basell, Ellie book. Yeah, we need y'all to be a little more. I need y'all to be a little more. So, like when you (laughs) don't just nod, I want everybody else to see a hand. So, if you've read Elie Wiesel, let me see a hand. Yeah, that's that's great. It's a lot a lot of folks. Elie Wiesel, um, one of the Holocaust survivors, uh, was taken into concentration camps when he was, I think, twelve. I was a graduate student uh, and was over in Chicago doing some research and. Stopped in there. They have a fantastic theological uh, bookstore over there University of Chicago. And I stopped, and I had never read any of Elie Wiesel, and I saw his famous little book called Night. It's only about 70, 80 pages long. And I read. I, I bought the book. I got on the South Shoreline Railway to come back fr- from Chicago back to South Bend. And I read. I got through the first 30, 40 pages of it, and I was undone in reading that book. And I was so undone by it that I set it aside and I thought, I don't know that I can ever read the rest of that book. But I knew I needed to read the rest of the book. And so I did what teachers often do, namely, when they write a course syllabus, they will put books on there that they know they should read, and they know they have to read it before their students read it. (laughs) And so I put Ellie Bizzell Knight on the class I was teaching at Notre Dame that next fall, and then I went, and knowing I had to read it before my students did, there are two beautiful lakes on the backside of Notre Dame campus, and I went and read that book, finished reading it while I walked, and when I finished, I just wept. And there's this one scene in in that book where Bizel, as a boy. You know, imagine your 13-year-old seeing this. And he tells a story about this, uh, what they called the angel-faced boy who was in the camp. He was one of the the kids who hadn't been so deeply corrupted by the violence of the camp. And he tells this horrific story about how finally something had happened in the camp and they decide they're going to hang him, hang that boy and two other men because of their efforts to try to undo the authority of the camp and they brought everybody out all the prisoners lined them up before the scaffold and they took the two men and the angel-faced boy and they hung them and Vizel tells that as he's standing there that the man behind him as i'm remembering the story it's been years since i read it but as i remember he says that the man behind him says where is God now? And either Wiesel or somebody else in the line responds by saying, God is there, hanging there. For Wiesel, its you can read it at least in that point in the narrative as Wiesel saying, whatever I thought I knew about God, and whatever God I believed in just died right there with that boy. And so it should be no surprise, for example, that the uh, Holocaust studies is a major development in, in in theology because it's a it's a major question of how do we get to a place of where there is so much depth of darkness and violence and hatred and hostility and God be the God we think God is. What the what the what theology at its best is trying to do is not subvert us but to say these are real questions. These are real questions. And how might we then go to some sort of understanding out of our faith that might deepen it? Well, second Faith-seeking understanding. Let's think about the presumption here of the importance of reason and understanding. Reason and understanding. There is oftentimes, I fear, in uh, in the church, a sort of implicit anti-intellectualism. And it seems to me, sometimes I hear anti-intellectualism touted almost as a mark of one's piety or one's real faith. It's like, well, we don't, want, we don't want to talk too smart about stuff because what I want is real faith. And if, I'm, if I really have faith, and I won't talk too much in terms of reason or rationality or intellect. But for Anselm, it's like, what? First, it presumes faith, and it's faith seeking understanding. And the reason that you would want to understand is because God created you a rational being. And for Anselm, God created you in the image of God, and thus being in the image of God as a rational being, part of what it means for you to be human is to seek to use your rationality to know your Creator and to love your Creator and glorify your Creator and be friends with your Creator through your rationality because it's God's gift. So I'm, so I'm suspicious of the anti-intellectualism. with Anselm, this image of God, this gift of rationality, our capacities to be ordered towards understanding. Anselm still believes, as far as I understand it, that even understanding is a gift of grace. It's not something you work out on your own. But even as you come to understanding, even that is a gift of God's grace. But it makes me wonder if, on the other hand, an anti-intellectualism Rather, I I tend to think that it would be better for us, rather than looking on kind of anti-intellectualistic comments as a mark of piety, I think we ought to look upon anti-intellectualism as a mark either of fearfulness or cowardice or laziness. Now, I don't want to be unfair, but I think we'll be more faithful as Christians if we see anti-intellectualism for what it is. I suspect it's more like one of those things. Because coming to understanding is hard work. It's hard work. Now, well, how, how, how might we have gotten ourselves into a place of having certain anti-intellectualistic tendencies? How many of you are from Churches of Christ background? Let me see hands. How many of you are not? Thank you. Um, for those of us from Churches of Christ um, I I will just say this I love the Stone Campbell tradition and um, I uh, you know that's another thing that I love about academics academics know that when you critique something it doesn't mean you're being dismissive but sometimes I think church people or other people in popular culture think if you're critiquing something you must Have disdain for it. But one of the things that's beautiful about the academic context is generally speaking, people can critique something and then say, But oh, I love this tradition, right? I love the tradition. But here's something I want to critique (laughs) Alexander Campbell used to say that um, the great thing for us to apprehend are the facts of the gospel, not theology. He says, it's this, not this. Facts, not theology, that we need. And he said, he used this metaphor to explain. He said, one does not need, if one is ill, what one needs is medicine, not a theory of medicine. And if you're like me, the first time you hear that, you think, huh, that seems pretty right. Right? You have a headache. You need some acetaminophen. (laughs) Not a chemistry degree. (laughs) Right? Pretty good. But all metaphors operate by trying to show a way in which some idea is like something else in some small facet, right? So let's think about this metaphor for a moment. You know, if what Campbell is trying to get, get us to get at, which unfortunately I don't think he is, uh, but I think you could say there's something right about this. You know, because you could say that um, if someone has a all right, let's look. What, what was what were some of the uh, widespread illnesses that were undone all of a sudden with the discovery of penicillin? Somebody, some physician, help me here. Strept yeah, well, well, Okay, so strep, strep that could undo you, <laughs> kill you. Now you got penicillin. You're good, right? Um. And we might say, well, how might that sort of observation work with theology, faith? Well, probably most of us, I don't know about most, but a lot of us have perhaps life experiences where we know that had not God reached into our life in some sort of tangible, concrete ways, through God's grace and did something that we could not do and that we could not understand then we might have been altogether undone I know I've had those and it didn't matter whether I understood it or didn't understand it I was altogether dependent upon the grace of God to get me out of that mess and I didn't and still in its fullness can't understand it but I'm immensely grateful for it so to that degree, I think this could be a helpful metaphor. But let's think about this just a second. Let's say you have somebody come into the doctor's office, and they, the doctor says, why are you here? And they, they say, I'm sick. And said, um, well, tell me about it. And they say, I, I want a pill. And he says, well, we'll, well, tell me more about you. I just don't feel good. And last time I was here, you gave me a pill and I felt better. I want a pill. And uh, he said, Well, what kind of pill do you think you need? And he said, well, I think I need an antibiotic. And he said, Well, we need to talk more. And I said, I want a pill. Give me the pill. And the doctor's sitting there thinking, perhaps, you know, are you not aware of the ways in which the widespread prescribing of antibiotics is causing a potential world health crisis? You know? And how far do you think he's going to get in that conversation? But the doctor wants the patient to know that kind of stuff. The doctor wants to be able to talk to the patient not just about taking a pill, but about hydration, and about diet, and about sleep, and about anxiety, and about human flourishing. Right? Surely there are moments where this, this metaphor works, but not over the long haul. Over the long haul, what we need is a way in which we see that these things have to be held together. You know, our God who loves us does not want us to to be the kind of beings he's always given the grace pill to. Got you out of your mess again. (laughs) He! Sometimes he has and does, and I thank God for it. But that's not what it looks like most likely for me to grow up. What it might look like for me to grow up is to be able to be someone who has faith, who seeks to employ the rationality that God has given me so that I might fully glorify the God who has made me. Does that make sense? So what if you did a, a different kind of metaphor? What if you did a metaphor like um I do not see a, a Let's say we do a metaphor like um the reality, the fact we might say, of friendship on the one hand, and understanding Memory, storytelling and listening on the other. You now I've got friends in this room, and the reason we have this ongoing fact of friendship and reality of friendship is because we spend a lot of time doing this is through understanding and listening and paying attention and remembering stories and continuing to do it again and again and again. And then sometimes you get to know somebody so well and and then you say, you know what, I don't think I've ever told you this story, but this might help you understand something about me. All right? That what's going on here is not that, that... the intellect and the rationality is not a threat to this. The rationality and the intellect is of service to this. And then this serves that and that serves this in its ongoing process of faith-seeking understanding. Which takes us to number three. Faith-seeking understanding presumes seeking a journey, a lived experience. We um, the sometimes I, I'm, uh, I'm fearful that not only are we afraid of people employing intellect, I think sometimes we're afraid of people taking experience seriously. And yet, Anselm, faith-seeking, understanding, is, is focused upon this journey and this process. And if you think about the narrative of Scripture, what's happening in the narrative of Scripture is the narrating of people's experiences. And moreover, some of the key turning points in the narrative occur because, precisely, people have experiences that cause a revolutionary change in the way the tradition or the scriptures are interpreted. So for example, Paul, Saul, right, is going down on the road to Damascus. Saul knows full well because he knows the scriptures well that these people claiming that this Jesus who was crucified was the Messiah are a great threat and he then goes and seeks to imprison them and or execute them. And he's on the road to Damascus and he has this blinding experience and an encounter with the risen Lord and he goes off and fasts for some while And then someone comes to help him interpret it. And then Galatians says he goes away for years into the wilderness. Not preaching, not speaking, not on the speaking circuit telling about the Damascus Road experience. But for years is off in the wilderness trying to make sense of what just happened to him. And moreover, he says in Galatians, that one of the fundamental things he had to reinterpret was, you might remember from Galatians, the verse he says he had to reinterpret. Cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree, says the law. And he knows, the Bible says very clearly, cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree. And he has to spend a long time, now clearly this is just a symbol of a lot of other stuff he's having to work through, but it's the symbol of the complete disruption of his life that has to occur because of the experience he had. Or you might think about the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Jerusalem, some, some people have said that Acts 15 is where Christianity begins. And what they mean by that is this. Up until Acts 15, the early movement of Messianic believers is basically a Jewish sect movement, Right? But what happens in Acts 15 is you have people like Peter and Paul who have begun to have these odd things happen where it looks like God is calling Gentiles into the people of God. And they get together in Acts 15, and they get in a room, and they tell each other their stories. And in telling each other their stories, then they get to the end, um, after having prayed and having, having paid attention to the scriptures and listening to each other's stories, they give this pronouncement. and they say it, you may know the verb, somebody should, I know somebody in here knows this verb. They say it what? Seems. It seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit that, and then they give three things they want to happen. And that a weird word seems. You know, and I remember the first time I really paid attention to the wording, and I thought, it seems. You are the big dogs in Jerusalem. You are inspired by God from on high. Give us the divine facts message. Don't tell us what it seems like to you. But that's what they say. It seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit in light of the Scriptures, in light of our prayers, and a lot of the stories that have been told, but this is what we should do. Now, here's an interesting, quick etymological uh, factoid. Uh, the, the Greek word for it seems, if I remember the um, form there, is docaine, which is where we get the English word dogma. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> Because think about how fascinating this is, right? When we hear someone say, don't be so dogmatic, right? That is not a compliment, right? (laughs) That is, you are just being pig-headed, but dogma, (coughs) the dogma of the church is the faith out of which we seek understanding. It's not a pig-headed, it's uh, in light of all that has happened. In light of the tradition, in light of the scriptures, in light of our experiences, in light of our use of God-given rationality, it seems to us this. That is the meaning, etymologically, of God. which changes it profoundly. I think. So, Paul, the Massive Experience of Jerusalem Council, or John chapter 1, I love this story you'll remember, in which John the Baptist is proclaiming Jesus as the Lamb of God. Jesus walks by, I can't remember if they're down by the seashore or what, but Jesus walks by and John the baptizer says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I think that's what he says there. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And two of John's disciples hear him say that and Jesus is walking by and so they start walking behind Jesus and following him. And Jesus turns around and says, what What do you want? What are you looking for? And they say, um, where do you live? Isn't that interesting? Where do you live? And Jesus says, what does he say? He says, come and see. And so they go along with him and it says they spent the whole day with him up until 4 p.m. I don't know why John tells us that, but at four they're done. <laughs> but at four, they say that John says that one of the one of those two that was following him was was it Andrew? Andrew, Andrew who's Simon Peter's brother, and Andrew goes to Simon Peter and says. We have found the Messiah. One of the things I love about that story is that it's about Jesus saying, he doesn't, come, he doesn't say, come let's reason together, right? This is not a, this is not a fetish about intellect. And he says, come and see. And they go see. And out of their seeing, they come to a conviction, come to faith. And then there's going to be lots of stories on and on where they try to figure out what in the world did I mean when I said we have found the Messiah. So let me, let me close with this one, uh, one, uh, one other kind of just, just tied up very quickly. Faith, seeking, understanding. Three elements. The presumption of faith. We start with the presumption of faith. This is not an apologetics class to assume that we can argue you into believing. We're just taking for the start that this is where we are. It's faith seeking understanding, the honoring of rationality, of intellect, because we are human beings given the gift of rationality and given the gift of intellect made in the image of God and thus called to seek to understand, which that itself we believe is a gift. And faith seeking understanding. A journey in which we honor one another's experiences. We honor one another's bearing witness. We take our own experience seriously. And we realize that only through journeying along together with Christ and journeying along with one another will we come to know things we could never know otherwise. Because we set out on the journey in faith. Comments, questions, observations? What's an example of when you're talking about anti-intellectualism. Um, I, I think it's things like um, the Bible says it, I believe it. That settles it. It's a sort of. Um, a desire to, I mean, this is just an example. This is not the definition, but an example. Somebody wants to read a verse in the Bible and say, Well, that's what it says end of story. And It's like, Well, actually, that's not the end of story at all. That's the beginning of the conversation. Because what we have to do is to bring experience, traditions of interpretation, the complex reality that the Bible says a whole lot of things and that it's said in a narrative. Um, And that a lot of resources of intellect and conversation and tradition have to be brought to bear upon saying that's what the Bible says. It's this sort of presumption that often shows itself that I'm more pious when I don't try to understand and just assert my faith. Um, I don't know, that's a great question. Anybody got other examples of this or want, want to talk about it? I heard someone say that they didn't think Revelation was meant to be understood. Yeah. So then you're like, well, what 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 does that mean, right? Yeah. Good. I was thinking about creation and science. The what? Creation and science. Mm. It's like if you're if you're delving into the science of creation, you know, you somehow suspect. Right. When there's there's the whole world of opportunity there to deepen faith. Right, and that's that's a great example because it. Um, this is my this is my vain name dropping for the day. Um, I was years ago. I got to do do an event with Francis Collins, who's the who was the head of the Human Genome Project for the government, and now he's the the head of the National Institutes of Health. And um, we were talking about faith and science stuff. And um, and he said, you know, what happens is that when people say, well, you either got to have faith or believe in science. But you can't have both when they have this sort of presumption. you got to choose, pit one against the other. He said, what happens is a lot of well-meaning young people who say, yep, well, that's right, I'm a believer. And then they go get in their freshman biology class in college, and they see all the evidence. Then they realize, well, the preacher told me I have to choose, and so the evidence for this is clear. So, okay, I'll choose. Faith is gone. Science is all of this left, right? And so that anti-intellectualism can cause lots of problems in in supportedly helping people's faith in the name of helping people's faith, but I think what it does is it unwittingly um, can destroy people's faith. Great example. Mm-hmm. I have heard uh, people from your position in class say words to the effect when you believe that you know God you may rest assured that you do not know God as if you cannot know the mind of God while they all of us yeah, yeah. So there, there is this sort of this uh, sort of complex reality that God. It's a long-standing part of the Christian tradition that God is God is transcendent and so far above the human reality that even, Lauren, and I was talking about this the other day. That even John Calvin would say. That the words of Revelation are divine are like divine baby speak to us, because God is so far above our comprehension and our understanding. And when we have words of Scripture, it's like, you know, the way we talk to our little our dog that we love. You know, oh, you sweet things, sweet, sweet little, oh, we need precious sweet little Otis. You know, and and it's like it, his analogy there is that God is so far beyond us, and at the same time. We are created in the image of God, given rationality, and God has condescended to speak through Scripture, through the tradition, through Moses and the prophets and Jesus, and so forth. And so there is this sort of tension between: we don't want to be too conceited to think we fully understand the will of God, and yet at the same time to know that well we do have, as Hebrews says, I think it is, you know, but we do see Jesus, right? This is what we have. And so we seek our best to, to understand that and do that as, as we go. One last question. I'm curious. I, I'm trying to figure out how you could take what you said about anti-intellectualism and not make it drive the wedge further. Because <clears throat> what you said, I'm trying to think how it would go over in my in-laws' church in Burlington, Texas. And they, they say... <laughs> That's not going to be okay. I mean, you know, it just feels uh, offensive. Well, I wouldn't say it in Burleson, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> or, or no, no, let me say it this way I wouldn't say what I said right now in Burleson, Texas. I would say it in Auto Creek. But what I would try to do in Burleson, Texas is um, I would say it very, very differently. You know, I, I would say, it seems to me that, or... Um, I one time had this really interesting conversation with this well-known scientist, and he was saying something like this, and I said, I wonder if any of you all have had that experience around here. Right. So, so you take the edge off. I take the edge off. Yeah. I take, take rhetoric and context into account. Thank you all very much. Look forward to seeing you next week.